Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Hey, everybody. You know, I got my PhD in history and policy at Carnegie Mellon University, specializing in the history of technology. And to some degree, that's what I've always done. Bring the perspective of a historian to bear on various policy debates. But there's another side of my experience there at Carnegie Mellon that is perhaps less apparent in my work. For most of my time at CMU, I was funded through the Department of Engineering and Public Policy, or EPP. And I was funded by a large National Science Foundation grant called the Climate Decision Making Center, which brought together engineers, scientists, economists, historians, decision scientists, and others to study complex technology policy issues around climate change. Being around EPP left an enormous impression on me and shaped the way I look at things. And one of the reasons this is true is because I believe that EPP folks like Granger Morgan, for instance, had strong arguments for their positions. So for example, at one point or other, you may have heard me talk about just how lousy human beings are at predicting the future. And I don't mean just a little lousy, I mean like thoroughly down to the core lousy. And in many ways, asking experts about the future, which is something lots of folks from journalism to academics do, is even worse. Expert understandings can get you a lot of things. Having insight to the future is not remotely one of them. And moreover, as Granger Morgan and David Keith argued in an article, maybe the worst way to think about future of all is via narrative. Narrative has all kinds of problems, but among them is that narratives about the future tend to make us overconfident in our knowledge of the future, which we don't have. 
And there's lots of other things I first learned in Carnegie Mellon's engineering and public policy department that after many years of analysis and thinking, I still believe in a deep way. And here's one of them. It was a kind of article of faith in the Climate Decision Making Center that there was no single magic bullet technology that was going to save our asses from climate change, which is still true. Rather, the best way forward was a complex mix of technological and habit changes that we could achieve through a variety of policy tools. So the idea is that we needed to turn away from a focus on any individual technology to a process that leads to a bunch of different positive technological changes. Now, if you hold this idea in mind, I think you should be worried about the place plug-in electric vehicles hold in current public chatter about climate change. To be clear, I'm pro-EV. Our transportation sector creates a lot of greenhouse gases. EVs are a necessary move in the right direction. But a kind of fetish has developed around this technology. Part of it is probably has to do with things like Elon and Tesla and people coming to think that EVs are sexy. Part of it probably is that humans simply have a hard time dealing with complexity and focusing on a totemic technology is just cognitively a lot easier. But the focus on EVs leads to a number of problems. First of all, even if we switch completely over to EVs, this still leaves huge portions of greenhouse gas output untouched. Transportation creates about 27% of greenhouse gas output in the United States. EVs can cut down on that significantly, but that still leaves 73% of output and deep industrial processes that create emissions, such as the production of steel, plastics, ammonia, and concrete, get far less attention in public conversation about climate change. EVs aren't even close to a magic bullet. Moreover, the focus on the EV as a single technology, here you can insert like a Playboy centerfold type shot of a Tesla or whatever, totally neglects how these vehicles fit into much larger systems. This includes where and how we are going to get the materials and minerals to build all the EV batteries, the effects and the effects of EVs will have on our electricity grid, particularly at the local distribution level, and so many other things. Mercifully, there has been good reporting on some of these issues recently. I have particularly seen some good pieces on bottlenecks around mining for batteries. But I feel like we are very lucky to have a new 12-part series, a systemic examination of limits around EVs titled The EV Transition Explained at IEEE Spectrum Magazine by Robert Charette. Now, I've been saying for years, one of my favorite things about my job is how many neat people I have met over the years. This became particularly true when I was working with Andy Russell on getting the maintainers going. The maintainers idea just brought out so many interesting folks out of the woodwork and from all kinds of sectors, from industry, nonprofits, policy analysis, academia, the gamut. And Bob Charette is one of those folks for me. Bob is an engineer, a consultant, and a businessman. He is a contributing editor at IEEE Magazine and the author of several books and many articles on risk management, project and program management, and technology adoption. As some of you know, I am obsessed with the topic of why organizations so often fail in adopting digital technology and software systems. And turns out this is something Bob has written a lot about. And so Bob has many overlapping interests with me and with Peoples and Things listeners. 
In his 12-part series, The EV Transition Explained, Bob brings his perspective as a systems engineer to bear on electric vehicles, and doing so raises a number of difficult and fascinating issues. What follows is a wide-ranging conversation where Bob and I chat about the series and what he found. I had a lot of fun chatting with Bob. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thanks, Lee, for inviting me. Uh, this 12-part series, the EV, or Electric Vehicle Transition Explained, is really neat. And I've never seen such a thorough treatment of the, the topic uh, so far. So how did you come to write it, and what were you trying to do with the series? Well, the, the series is kind of an offshoot of some other work I did for Spectrum. A few years ago, I wrote a story that was a, it's kind of a shaggy dog story in one sense. I wrote a story back in 2009 called This Car Runs on Code, which looked at the software inside vehicles as it was starting to really percolate through the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about lots of new technologies that were coming on board. And I wrote in there that the car, the high-end cars in about 2009, 2010 had like 100 million lines of software code. Right. And no one believed me um, <laughs> until GM, the head of GM at the time, said that they expected to have 300 million lines of code in their car by 2020. Wow. So uh, a few years ago, I decided that it was time to revisit that story. So I wrote a, a fairly lengthy piece called uh, how software is eating the car, which basically takes a look at how much more software is in the vehicles today and how much more would be expected to come if you were having, say, autonomous vehicles, which mm -hmm. numbers range from 500 million on up, which is a staggering amount. When you consider mm -hmm. that the top U.S. fighter jet only has about 40 million lines of code. Wow. So there is more code. Now you can argue about you know, functionality and, you know, yeah. where the code is and, but it's just the, the amount of complexity that that's in vehicles today. I followed that up because it, it, where that story led me was to EVs because the, mm -hmm. that, the original story on software eats car looked at basically internal combustion engines, uh, vehicles and some element of EVs, but I didn't really dig deep into the EV story. So I decided to dig deep into the EV story from a technological standpoint, from the, from an automaker and, and auto supplier perspective. Mm -hmm. So I kind of nailed the technology side down, looking at, okay, what was really needed for that, which is lots of new skills, changes in the, in the supply chain, change in how the automotive manufacturers need to even think about cars because they had all, other than Tesla and a few others, uh, you know, had basically had didn't want to have anything to do with EVs, something that you yeah. wrote yourself. And um, so I decided that th the third story was going to take a look at the EV manufacturers themselves. So the plan was the third part of the story was to say, OK, let's go talk to Tesla. Let's talk to GM. Let's talk to Ford and talk about their EV strategies. And no one wanted to talk to me, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of interesting in itself. 
but I think it was because, again, they didn't really want to get on the record too much about what their plans were and where they were going. Uh, yeah. Because, again, it would, it, it's such in flux and every week people change what they're going to do, their direction. So I decided I was going to take a look at, at kind of making an assumption. If we assume that EVs are going to come and EVs are going to go at scale, because, you know, we're talking even today, we're only a few million, you know, vehicles, EVs of all types, you know, yeah. uh, plug-in hybrids along with uh, zero emission vehicles. Uh, you're talking to scale, you have to be up in the tens of millions, if not the hundred million plus mark. And so if we're getting to that level, then that's, there's going to be a lot of changes that, that are going to occur. So I decided to say, okay, well, if you want to get there, what are the roadblocks to getting mm -hmm. there? And so the original story started out as three parts, then grew to six parts, and then went to 12 parts until my editor said, stop, it's time <laughs> out. Um, you know, we, we, we can't keep, you know, you can write, write a hundred, you know, articles on this. And yeah. so that's where the 12 came out. So it's kind of a long shaggy dog story, but that's kind of the, the process of, of yeah. how we got there. No, I think it's great, man. And, um, so when you write, I've looked at your other stuff, lots of your other stuff too. You, you tend to take, you tend to pull back and look at things in a kind of systemic, uh, perspective. That's part of what you're up to. Do you, do you think of yourself as like a systems engineer? Is that your background or how do you think about your identity? Yeah, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a systems engineer. I've worked on extremely large scale systems in government, in commercial, um, in, I mean, just in almost every area of, of industry, except maybe petrochemicals. I've mm -hmm. worked in telecommunications and computing, uh, in defense, uh, elements of banking. So it, it's, what what my forte what you know after being in the business I, you know i graduated school 46 years ago from as an undergrad uh with a degree in electrical and computer engineering and i i broaden that out over time and circumstance and opportunity to look at things from a systemic standpoint because i think mm -hmm. you need to sit back and, and take a look at the whole, because it's kind of the gestalt, you know, whole part whole. And that one of the things I try to do in the writing is to get into the detail, because at the end of the day, it's an engineering problem, right? There's an yeah. engineering thing you have to build. You have to build an EV, all right? And that's what the two first two stories we're looking at is how hard is it to do this? And mm -hmm. what do you need? What do the automakers need to do? It's another whole different set if you stand back and say okay now i have to sell these i have to service these but i also have to get people to buy them what happens when they do buy them what what happens to the skill sets what happens to the people who don't have those skill sets what you know what happens as you move it from a technology to a geopolitical um element and right. so you know you, you can't talk about EVs as just a technological system yeah. because they are much different. The other issue with EVs, which is much different than, than ICE vehicles, is that they are cyber physical systems. Okay. And what that means is that they interconnect. They're basically embedded in the, in, in the larger social as well as technological, technological environment. So they're interconnected. So, um, Basically, Bruce Schneider, who, who writes a lot about cybersecurity, 
he said that cyber the, the difference with cyber cyber physical systems is that they have hands and feet mm-hmm. is that they now can actually cause physical damage or they can connect and provide benefit so now you have a an ev which by definition is now interconnected communication wise as well as um physically within the system and so mm-hmm. it's connected to the energy systems it's connected to communication systems it's connected to government systems that are monitoring it so all of a sudden now you have you have a, a big big difference mm-hmm. and the other element is that because it's software defined the mechanics of the vehicle itself is uh, divorced from the mechanical side so right. you have you have the you, you you don't need to have a steering wheel with with a, a tie rod, right? You can just right. have a you know game controller to move. Right, the car. right. <laughs> and in fact, what you can do, and this is what's happening elsewhere, is that with with EVs, you have people who you can buy a subscription to a vehicle which is driven by somebody else. Wow. So it can be it can be remotely driven, and this is hmm. this is there's startups who are offering this as a service now. So, you know, this is a totally different beast, and so mm-hmm. the implications from a technological societal, economic, personal uh, perspective is much, much different. Yeah. So I want to ask one more background question before we start to like hop into different elements of this. You've written for a long time on a broad array of subjects, including uh, why software systems so often fail in organizations, which you know is one of my favorite topics. Um, how has writing fit into your career as an engineer and, and consultant? Because there's often there's a lot of people who do the kind of work you do who don't write. So how 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 has this been connected to you as someone who's worked in industry for so long? Well, I don't know. I, when I was a undergrad um, at the University of Massachusetts, I took a lot of journalism courses, and part of it was because friends of mine were reporters. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were kind of an eclectic bunch themselves. Most of them had had worked for the Stars and Stripes um, while they were in the Army or after the Army. So lots of my peer group were combat vets, and they had gone into journalism. They were a few years older than me. And so I was interested in – I've always been interested in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I still consider myself a, a – a budding writer. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I still have a, a even though I've, I've written a lot, I haven't quite got got my uh, my peak yet. But um, so it was always one of the things that that was really um, hard for me to understand was why engineers didn't like to write, mm-hmm. because we do some of the most interesting things that that exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people would it, when I was in school and even after school and working um, in the research labs in the Navy is that people were much, would much rather code than they'd want to write about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had somewhat of a knack for it, I guess. And uh, again, through my connections to people in journalism uh, and in, in magazines, I just was able to you know, create that career. Um, I've always found it important uh, maybe you as a as an educator can relate to this, is that if you want to learn about something, you got to write about it. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only way that you can really dig in and you can, you know, challenge your own assumptions 
understand what's going on because a lot of times uh, when I go into a story, I have kind of an idea of what I want to want to write about. But by the time I get done, you know, if I look back at my first draft, it's not yeah. anywhere like my last draft. Yeah, you're in a different place. Yeah, you're yeah. in a totally different place. I, I, it's not untypical for me to write ten to twelve, if not more, drafts of of an article before I get to the to the mm-hmm. to the end point. And and many times I've gone two thirds or three quarters to the end and say this isn't working. This isn't what I want to say. It's not. It's not the idea. Right. Mm -hmm. I may have gone on some tangent or down some rabbit hole and you have to pull (laughs) yourself back. But um, so it's just one of those things. Uh, I'm not quite sure why people, you know, don't like to write. Uh, Yeah, it's it's just uh, I get really itchy if I'm not writing. That's great, man. So, um, you know, we're going to our conversation like your series is about EVs as kind of systemic picture or issue. And I think in our society, so much coverage focuses on the EV itself as like this mm. magic bullet, great thing. I think, you know, it's got Elon Musk and other very charismatic people tied up around it. And, you know, but in general, people aren't pulling back and looking at the broader issues around EVs instead of just focusing on the technology. So let's start with batteries, because, I mean, these things run on batteries. What limits and challenges did you find around battery production just to focus on that? Well, the, the battery issue is one of these really interesting ones when you really start to dig into it. What I found was that uh, there's there's a number of different elements with the battery because the battery itself has a system set of systemic issues as well. You know, we can we can talk about batteries from their chemistry and there's lots of different chemistries out there. Uh, but that chemistry depends on particular minerals like cobalt and lithium and graphite and other things. And so there's different combinations that people have. But one of the things about batteries is that they're heavy and therefore, you know, you have, have um, you know, a weight issue with the EV. You have these minerals, as I mentioned, which means you have to go mine these minerals. You have to go refine these minerals. You have to transport these minerals. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole set of supply chain that just doesn't exist. And the, and the supply chain that does exist, uh, again, it's not at scale. Mm-hmm. And it's normally uh, about 75%, depending on, on who you read, is uh, controlled by China. Or okay. by, you know, sources outside the United States. Yeah. So you have that you have that issue, which again, all of a sudden now, you know, you, it, it, some people talk about you, you you're swapping oil for minerals in uh-huh. terms of the geopolitical you know security. Yep. Uh, so you have that issue. Uh, the other thing is is that uh, in batteries themselves, people think of this one big battery. Well, it's not one big battery. There's lots and lots of individual cells that make up these batteries, and these different components of how they're uh, set up depends on the company and how they want to do their their uh, architecture. That alone requires a very sophisticated set of battery management software to make sure that that those batteries are uh, able to be charged or not losing charge can provide the energy that you need. Uh, keep the you know the battery from you know blowing up because mm-hmm. these things you know they're big battery chemistry which you know if they catch fire um, burn for a very long time and a very hot as we found <laughs> with you yes. know, a number of times. And yeah. so you know so the this whole thing of 
of batteries is kind of like a microcosm of the EV you know, revolution in itself because we have to build all these things. Now, you know, the U.S. has, again, depending on how you count, you know, uh, eight or 10 different battery factories. We, we have another 14 to 16 um, that are being built in the United States. Yep. Um, but worldwide, the, the estimate is, is that you need, you know, hundreds of these things. Right. And so now you have to say, okay, well, is there enough mining, enough mines to provide yeah. the batteries for all these, all these uh, yeah. uh, manufacturing plants? And so, you know, there's there's some people uh, like Carlos Stefaris, who, who's head of Stellantis, who basically has said that we're going to run out of, of batteries in 2025, 2026, because the yeah. battery supply chain isn't there. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's one of these it's one of the more interesting things is that something very core yeah. uh, has a tremendous amount of uncertainty <laughs> around it and yeah. and just. In terms of like, look, if you take a battery plant, I, Ford announced that it's going to put a new battery plant in Michigan. Uh, it's going to spend, I think, about $3 billion to, like uh, yeah. to put the battery plant in. But it's going to take several years for the battery plant to be built. And then it takes an, another length of time for, the, for those batteries to actually meet the requirements of the automotive manufacturers. Because it isn't like a turnkey thing. You know, this is, there's a lot of delicate element in it. If you can find uh, the people, because there's a there's a big problem with finding people. The other issue with finding people is that battery plants are normally not unionized, so they pay at a lower lower wage scale. Um, it, it's interesting. Subaru said that it would not build EVs in the United States because it can't compete with McDonald's wages. Oh my so, god! So. What what you get paid at at a yeah. at a battery plant, you know, is a is a, a core issue for the UAW for the unions, yeah. uh, for the automotive manufacturers. A lot of them haven't, you know, uh, I would say on purposely have, have put them in right to work states. Yeah, of uh, the cheaper yeah. labor, uh, because batteries also are the biggest cost of the car. Um, although some people argue software is is the biggest cost. Okay, it's yeah. You know, there's, it, it's a hard, it's, it's probably, you know, one and two, just which way you want to, you want to call it. And right. so you, you we're now in this situation where we've, we've, we're saying we're going to go down, down this EV path, uh, hopefully mostly with, with, uh, zero emission, uh, battery electric vehicles rather than plug-in hybrids. And we don't know where the supply chain is, is coming from. Yeah. And so it's not only us, it's, it's, you know, China, it's totally. you know, Europe, you, know, you, you, Australia. Everybody has has made these commitments to getting rid of the ICE vehicle, banning ICE vehicle sales by 2035, for the most part. Some, some even earlier, like the UK. And yet, we, you know, that supply chain, how that, it, it's, it's kind of a hope. We hope that mm -hmm. it's all going to be there, um, and we hope that all the dates that we put in actually you know, come to be. So, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> that's just one element of, of this whole, you know, EV transition that, that you need to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go to the opposite. We start with batteries. Let's go to the opposite end of the kind of systems uh, story, I guess, in one picture anyway, and talk about 
uh, the electricity grid for a moment. So tell us about the limits there and why, you know, you use Palo Alto in your story as a kind of case study. Why do you find Palo Alto helpful as a, to use? Well, I think what, what there's a big debate, you know, in, in whether or not the grid, you know, the, the electrical system will collapse if you add more EVs. Yep. And if you do the numbers in terms of just the wattage or voltage or power, whatever, you know, uh, measurement you want to use, you could say by 2030, the grid will not collapse because of the EVs. Okay. If you just do kind of high level math, Mm -hmm. but if you actually then say, well, what about at a local area, then the math becomes totally different. Okay. Because one of the problems that, that EVs have is they draw a lot of power and they draw a lot of power from your local transformer that's around your house, the pole transformers. Now, it turns out that uncoordinated charging of EVs can reduce the, in fact, if you had six to seven, it's estimated, uncoordinated charging of EVs in a neighborhood using L2 chargers, which is your 240 volt charger that, that you'd have rather than just your, your standard plug, mm-hmm. uh, will reduce the lifespan of a 30 year transformer to three years. Hmm. So, most of the transformers in the United States are 25 years or older. Uh-huh. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, you know, if you start putting uh, EVs with L2 chargers, which is the preferred charging uh, uh, method that, that people would like to have because it's faster charging you can charge overnight without any problems or in, a, you know, four or five hours if you're partially charged, um, now becomes a major issue for the local utility at the distribution level, because you have to remember the grid is made up of three parts. It's made up of power generation, mm-hmm. transmission, and then distribution. So it's the distribution area. So when people talk about it's not going to take the grid down, they're talking about the actual gen- power generation element. Right. Okay. And even that, you know, you can people will argue with you about 2030 to 2035 if you go to renewables, but that's another issue. Mm-hmm. So. At the local area, I use Palo Alto because I came across a story that said that uh, Palo Alto, which is which is the city of EVs, right mm-hmm. there in California, has has highest percentage of EVs in the country. Uh, they cannot put more L2 chargers in certain neighborhoods without taking down their local distribution network. Yeah, and so I started digging in to find out, well, where else is that occurring? Well, it turns out that it's occurring across the United States. Hmm. So um, my local uh, electric uh, cooperative has just done a study and showed that uh, about 24% of the uh, transformers are already overloaded in the wintertime. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% are expected to be overloaded as you go to EVs at scale. So now you have to look and say, okay, if I'm going to have EVs in a neighborhood, I have to coordinate their charging. Well, how do I coordinate their charging? Well, I can try to bribe them Mm -hmm. um, to charge. And uh, that's what a lot of electric companies are doing. And what what they're trying to do is say, well, do it at off peak, do it at night. The trouble with charging at night is that transformers are designed to cool at night. So if you shift the load to the evening time, now your your lifetime of your transformer 
drops even faster. And in fact, Stanford did a study, Stanford researchers published a study last fall that basically don't charge at night. Huh. Okay, which is against what everybody's been been telling EV uh, owners for, for years. Yeah. Okay. And so now you have more confusion. So what what you want to do is you can say, well, we can have the utility control your your charging. Mm-hmm. But that requires what's called advanced uh, metering infrastructure, AMIs. And AMI, the current version of AMI, for most utilities to not allow that. So they cannot control that charging. In fact, they have very little insight. Most utilities have very little insight into what actually is happening on your grid in a, in a voltage um, setting, you know, from second to second or minute to minute. Mm-hmm. And so now you have to say, well, now we have to upgrade the local grid yep. and upgrade the transformers, which have, because of COVID, the prices have gone through the roof. Wait times are a year to 18 months for some of these. Wow. You also have to increase the size of the transformer, which requires a stronger pull. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so this, you can see kind so of now this, we're bringing the lumber industry in too. Yeah. So now, so now <laughs> it's it's kind of this cascading effect, right? Yeah. So, so now you have to change the software at the utilities. You have to, you know, and for now, other people say, well, why don't we just have the the EV serve as a battery and feed right. power back into the grid? The trouble is, is you need to have, you know, the homeowner has to spend money to get a specialized, you know, uh, inverter that can can do that. That uh-huh. also has, you can't just plug it in. The, the utility company really doesn't like that. Um, mm. And so they have to be involved. You normally have to have a panel upgrade, electrical panel upgrade. And uh, you need to have a lot of EVs to send the power back onto the grid. Yeah. You know? And so, again, it these are all things that are possible. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of engineering that is required yeah. and there's a lot of management time. So Palo Alto yeah. is, is digging hard into, you know, what do we need to do to improve our, our AMI system, which is supposed to be sometime next year, although mm-hmm. that may slip. They're looking at, at improving their, their transformers, but again, they're on a wait list. Uh-huh. They're, the the big, one big, big issue is that they can't hire skilled lines people to work in Palo Alto because it's pretty bloody expensive, mm-hmm. you know, in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that Palo Alto, the, the council and the, the mayor actually sent me a, a note, uh, my story saying, well, we're going to, we're going to take care of it. But every time I read the, the monthly minutes, you know, it's kind of like, well, there's another problem. There's another yeah, problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it, it's, this is going to be replicated in hundreds of loca- of locations. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of work, a lot of engineering work being done to, to try to manage it. And again, theoretically, okay, you could, if you had enough EVs and they had, uh, you know, vehicle to grid charging and you could set, have, have everything with your transformer. Yeah, you, you can manage the problem, but there's a lot of things that have to occur. Mm-hmm. You know, and and people have to be willing to spend that money. Uh, yeah. So again, part of the story was is is for each one of these is to try to 
not say that you can't do it. It's just to say, if you're going to do this, you have to be aware of all these these details, these engineering yeah. details that that you need to to you know manage, um, so you can make this work. And it, again, if you're going at scale, right, mm-hmm. that's that's a big big issue, right? Yeah. If you're doing it with, you know, say five thousand in Virginia and ten thousand in Pennsylvania and you're doing that over a year, yeah, you might be able to handle that. But if you're saying like Massachusetts, saying, well, we want a million EVs on the road by twenty thirty and we have fifty thousand now, well if I do the math, okay, I'm talking about, (laughs) you know, a hundred thousand EVs more more than a hundred thousand EVs a year, every year. Yeah you know, popping up in Massachusetts, which doesn't have a, you know, a grid to support it. So again, it's mm-hmm. people, it's, it's easy to talk about a solution if you're talking about small numbers, but if you're talking about hundreds of thousands, you're talking about millions or tens of millions, that's a whole different ball game. And I think, again, people, especially politicians don't, don't quite appreciate, you know, the kind of the Kraken that they, they've unleashed with this thing. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I just checked that California's mandate is all electric by 2035, right? right? And other states look like they might head in that direction. But, you know, again, that just seems it's like, you know, it's like being obsessed with Elon and and just thinking about the car. It's just like, all right, we're going to get all these EVs. But have you seen any state level policies yet that also take into account the electricity grid and what you need to do with that? Are people yeah, building people, in that? Yeah, yeah. People are looking at it, but the, the, but the problem is, is that there are so many people involved in mm-hmm. approving a, you know, a grid, right. Uh, yeah. Approving a, a, even a transmission line, you know, a, a just one that's local may take 10 years of permitting totally. to get through. Okay. Yeah. So, so even if you, you know, there's, there's, tremendous amount of renewables ready to go onto the grid, but it takes a lot. You can't just, again, it's not a plug and play. You have to be very careful because the grid is very, very fragile. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's very fragile in certain states versus others in certain cities. And so remember there's thousands of elect, you know, uh, electric companies, right? There's yeah. lots of, of producers. There's lots of people on the transmission line. Some are, regulated some are not so again it there are so many people involved at the at the very local level all the way to the federal level not counting all the state and everybody else who's involved that you know just getting anybody to agree on something is is very difficult you know it's not uncommon for a decade or almost two for new transmission lines to be to be put into place and so you know, if, if you're saying I have this date of 2035 and I'm expecting to have n number of million EVs, then you can compute the amount of power that you need. And if you say, well, I, I, I can't support it that way. I need to go to vehicle to grid. Then you need to say, OK, well, how am I going to do that? Yeah, and so, you know, yeah. and so but I don't see anybody, you know, sitting back and, and doing the re, real detailed analysis that that you need even in a particular state yeah and even like in california what's happened there is that they've had to cut back billions of dollars in environmental spending to help 
with the transition to not only to EVs, but heat pumps and, and other uh, elements of, of, the, of trying to combat climate change with electrification um, because of the budget. And so, yeah. you know, there's there's an assumption that government is going to have rebates that they're going to, you know, if they don't have any money, you don't get any rebates. And, yeah. and this is what's happening in California. Poor people have bought EVs expecting a rebate and then find out that the government, that California has, isn't funding it. Wow. And so when they do fund it, they may get their rebate a year or two later. Well, that doesn't help them a lot. Yeah. You know, so again, this this is it's hard to, to really understand, you know, I understand in one sense why there's a big push because you're looking and you're saying you need to reduce the, the uh, temperature climb that, that mm. we're being projected. And so you need to, to push hard, but on the same, it, you, you want to do it smartly, right? Yeah. You don't want to get yeah. to a point where, you know, this is actually going to cause backlash um, mm-hmm. more that, than already exist. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's these types of things that, that kind of drive me nuts because again, a lot of the engineering studies are now just being done. Yeah. Which is, which follows policy by years. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had a couple friends uh, who uh, work around the auto industry tell me that the auto industry thinks that hybrids are actually a much better short-term solution to these issues, but they don't get as much play. Did any of the folks you interview about these issues talk about that? Yeah, just about every one, but none of them, none of them will go on the record. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, well, that shows you something, right? Yeah, I think. well, even even like with Toyota, Toyota has been, been you know, pounded uh, into the ground by, by saying that, you know, e, you know, hybrids is a way, you know, as a transition point yeah. Um, and and it, it's basically they've had a change in leadership who've now, you know, the, the new you know uh, president of, of Toyota is, is now saying, well, we're going to move much stronger into, you know, yeah. zero emission vehicles. But if you're taking a look at, at you know, technologies that, that are not only in the laboratory, but have worked out with uh, low uh, heat engines that can be put into uh, hybrids along with larger batteries uh, that can, you know, basically get you the the local mileage, um, then, you know, they are, I think, a, a great way to get to where you want to go, get, get your reduction um, in uh, carbon uh, quicker than if we go with an EV route and we and we make EVs so expensive that only a, a small portion can afford it, or you have to spend yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, in rebates to to try to, you know, yep. attack that problem. And so, you know, people don't like don't like to talk about it because that that's you know part of the issue is that uh, a number of environmentalists say, well, you need to get rid of um, all fossil fuels. So that's just going to keep fossil fuels around longer. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it harder. I can understand that argument to a degree. There's also an argument that lots of people, especially with plug-in hybrids, don't plug them in, right? They uh-huh. just use the gasoline uh-huh. motor. But again, you know, I think that's, I don't know how true that is. You know, I've read different stories on, on that where some say that's that happens. Some say it doesn't. But part of it, too, is that, you know, part of the issue gets us into this charging element. Mm-hmm. You know, if if 
there's public charging that's ubiquitous, uh, then you know why wouldn't you plug in your your hybrid? Right. You plug in hybrid because it's cheaper than paying for the gasoline. Yeah, so yeah, to yeah. me, it doesn't make a you know the, the, that argument doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. You know, so I actually wanted to go to public chargers next anyway. So you're, okay. you're teeing me up perfectly. Right. So you know, like what what limits did you find around those? And you know, one thing I wanted to mention, you and I have talked about this. My buddy Aaron Gordon, who's a a, a journalist at Vice. He did uh he did a an article or two on fast charging stations and one of the things I learned about through him is that like the super fast chargers I can't remember the you know the specs on them but they use as much electricity as like 230 households or something like that. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like it's north of 200 households. Yeah, they call and it so, a small stadium. <laughs> yeah. And so like you know, you can imagine that working in some states, but any state where they're still using like fossil fuels to produce electricity, uh, you know, the pay, the trend, the trade-offs there seem like pretty unclear to me. Yeah, they are unclear, and it's and it's yeah. going to be unclear, um, you know, in, in until we get to full renewables, which yeah. again is is sometime down the line. You know, in in certain countries, for instance, in in Europe. Uh, yeah, your EV is is going to be much more dirty than your your petrol uh, mm -hmm. vehicle um, because of the elect how they generate that electricity. Um, and so, again, it depends on the state. It depends on your time of charge. It depends on your vehicle. What can how fast it charges. Um, so there's there's so many different different things in play that again some of the work that that I found was that it will take several years for you to, you know, between the carbon that, that you're used to create EVs, because mm -hmm. it's more than with ICE vehicles, and where you're charging to break, get that crossover point. Yeah. So that crossover point is going to be different, again, in, in different states. And in, in Wyoming, it's going to be a lot different than it, than it is here in Virginia. Although mm -hmm. here, again, in Virginia, we don't have a lot of renewables that, yeah. that we use. So... Again, it's it's one of these things that, again, there's no free lunch here. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's it's what are you trading off? You know, mm -hmm. there's there's um, there's a lot of people who uh, I won't say are anti EV, but are but are really skeptical of EV who, who use the energy card and say, well, you know, energy, you know, in, in terms of density, you're not going to get any better energy density than fossil fuels. You know, you're mm -hmm. not going to get it from renewables. And so. You know, if you're trying to match that density level, what do you have to do to, to match it? So you can take a look. Bloomberg had a, had a paper, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, that, that showed how much area would be needed to have uh, for solar panels and wind farms to match what we use right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's huge amounts of area um, mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, and so the, the argument is, is, well, we can't do that. So what everybody has to do is drive less. So that's, again, yeah. you know, that's the next thing is it, yeah. if you can't get there, then what you have to do is you have to, what, what's the other trade-off you have to do? Right. But getting back to charging, you know, what was interesting is in Massachusetts, um, the, um, uh, the utility company there, um, whose name escapes me, they do both uh, new, uh, national grid. They, they published a study last October and November that did a deep dive into charging at at plazas, like on the turnpike up there and, and in the major highways. Um, 
And what they found was that they do that, that they need not like five fast chargers. They need 25 fast chargers oh at a plaza, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Which requires you to tap into the transmission lines, yeah. right? With a new substation. And those take that, that's a small town. Okay. That's right. the amount of power of a small town. Now they say they're lucky because the transmission lines run in parallel to most of the main yeah. highways in, in New England. And so they, you know, but even they said, well, we have to, we have to start planning now because it, it's going to take us 10 years to drop a line yeah. to these, these plazas. So, you know, the Biden administration, it says, well, I want 500,000 chargers, not charging stations as people say, but these are chargers. Yeah. Um, and they looked and said, um, you need 20 times that, that yeah. number. And wow. so again, it's, you know, these are the, these are the real engineering numbers yeah. that again, as I said, people are only now starting to take a look at and say, okay, well, what is that power draw? Okay. Yeah. How long does it take to, to, you know, permit it, to get it, you know, just get a contractor. Cause even for themselves, you know, they can't spend their whole life just doing EV, you know, charging. You know, they yeah. have other things that they that they have as well. And as I said before, there's big skill shortages in the utility uh, market. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it came out around heat pumps, like you were mentioning earlier. There was all these visions of going massive heat pump all across the nation, anywhere where it makes sense. And then people have done the analysis and found there's nowhere near the workers you need to get this done. <laughs> and no sense of where they would come from, right? Because right. they the don't cost, have trained the, up. And the costs are much higher than, than yeah. what people, you know, thought at, at one time they, they were talking maybe, you know, almost like for like, you know, you take out your furnace, you put in a, a, a heat pump and they found that it's not like for light, it is more expensive. And so that creates another set of rebates that, that states are now trying to put out. But, yeah. uh, again, like in Massachusetts, I'll take, you know, pick on them. I, I grew up there. Um, so I can pick on them, but, uh, they want a million EVs. They want, a million heat pumps and they would like to have a million solar panel installations. Yeah. So how are you going to do that? Right. right. And, and then, yeah, who, yeah. and who can afford it? Because the, even though their medium income is higher than, than most uh, in the United States, there's not a lot of people who can afford to do all three. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. And, and even if you say, well, your total cost of ownership will be less. Well, that doesn't help me pay the bill today. No. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, jam tomorrow isn't a really good argument, you know, to, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, and I, you know, I think a lot of my friends are, you know, they ride bicycles to work and they're big advocates for mass transit and all these things. And I wonder sometimes, I mean, this is their argument is that EVs are a way of like stopping, like kind of trying to not to have other kinds of conversations we could have about how to shift things. Um, because we've come, you know, the U.S. is a very driving centric nation. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how we built our cities, um, you know, and even like, you know, I lived in Maryland in uh, College Park for a couple months. That that city is not made to walk around in mm -hmm. at all. You know, there's lots of places where you're basically walking on the side of a highway. So it's like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you feel like, you know, that the EV is we're fixated on it because we want to just preserve the way we've been living for the last 50 odd years or however. Long. Well, yeah, I, I think, again, you know, it's a friend of mine, uh, John Leslie King, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Michigan, 
uh, who, who studies pu public policy and, and uh, introduction to technology, uh, he, he said that, that all futures ride on the rails of things from the past. Yeah. And, and so, again, you know, it, it's, we're talking about a sociological change, right? A societal change. We have built society, especially the U.S., after the 1950s along the car. Yeah. Right. You've written about that. And, and you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, EVs are going to change that is, is I think, somewhat naive. But it yeah. also plays into the hands of the automotive manufacturers who look and say, EVs is a great source of new revenue for us. Totally. All right. Where if, if you talk about replacing, you know, they're, they're selling maybe 12 million vehicles a year. And there's and, and that's a turnover of 20 to 30 years. And they can say, hey, we can have this big turnover in 15 years um, and we can make all this other money. Uh, of course, they're going to say, yeah, one for one. OK. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so the mass transit, you know, argument gets gets lost. But at the same time, politicians don't like mass transit because no, it, it, it takes a lot of money. It takes a long time ridership, especially after the pandemic, most of these mass transit systems are trying to figure out how to stay solvent. Yeah, totally. And, and so, you know, even if, if you take a look like San Diego, uh, you know, has passed a, a bill, 160, they're gonna, they want to spend $160 billion in trying to improve mass transit, reduce driving, um, really get people to walk at more, uh, you know, neighborhoods, you know, where you're, where you work and you live and you walk and you ride your bike and they can't pass a tax to, to even start funding it. And yeah. so, you know, the resistance is going to be very, very high. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look again in the United States where, you know, there's a lot of people who live in the rural area of which about 64 to 70 percent of the United States are considered rural. Right. Um, how do you how do you support them? Okay. Yeah. So it, it's you're teeing me up again, actually. Yeah. I was about to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like you had like at least two of the pieces and I'll in the show notes, I will link to the whole series mm -hmm. so people can just dive in because they really people should take a look at the whole thing. You had at least two pieces kind of focused on the consumer side of it and marketing and such. One, the one I really love the one you wrote on super users. Mm -hmm. These are people who use their car much more than the rest of us. It turns out to be a really important part of the puzzle. And the other is just meeting sales targets and like whether we'll be able to do that. So let's talk about consumers for a little while. And why don't we start with these super user characters and how they can be converted or not? Yeah, super users is an interesting group. It's it's the small percentage of drivers that use a disproportional, disproportionate amount of, of fuel, you know, somewhere mm -hmm. like 10% using 30% of, of gasoline. And so one of the ideas that was that was pushed by this uh, environmental activist group called Cultura out in Seattle is to why don't we incentivize them because they're the ones who are driving so much and uh, get them onto EVs first. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's a good idea if you wanted to reduce, you know, the your your fuel consumptions, you know, get a small group who's using up a tremendous amount, get them on EVs first. The trouble is, is that lots of them drive SUVs. Lots of them live in rural communities. Yeah. Um, and these people are driving, by the way, the, the, the reason um, for their for their high gas um, mileage is, is that they're driving like, uh, I forget the exact number, I think it's like 
um, 30,000 miles a year. It's, it's a, it's a uh -huh. huge number. Um, but it's, it's basically, uh, three times the amount that, that normal drivers, uh, uh -huh. drive. And so these people also pull trailers, um, yeah. you know, and as I said, they drive these big F one fifties or, you know, GM, uh, pickups. And so, you know, Silverado's. And so now you start to say, okay, well, can we actually get them to, you know, buy a, a an SUV, mm -hmm. you know, an EV, like an F-150 Lightning or, you know, the new Ram truck that's going to be coming out next year or the year after yeah. and, you know, the new Silverado. And it, and it, you know, turns out that they're not interested, right? The sales, yeah. <laughs> the sales of F-150s are not going to F-150 owners. They're going to other people. A lot of them who own EVs like Tesla's who want something bigger. Right. Okay. Uh, so you're hitting a totally different demographic. A totally demographic. These, yeah. And so, so what happens is, is that, you know, from, if you're looking and you're saying, I, I want to target people who are high end users, the use cases don't, don't fit. And even, yeah. you know, uh, the CEO of, of, uh, Ford says, yeah, we don't expect people in Wyoming to be buying F one fifties. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, he, including cause they're not doing very well on mountains and stuff, right? Hey, well, bunch... it's, you know, again, the ranges, yeah. you know, mountains, winds, you know, you know, just the terrain, it, it just isn't conducive. And yeah. so, you know, not for big, for what they need. Okay. Yeah. They also have a problem in that, you know, from charging standpoint is that, you know, where do they charge? Yeah. Okay. There's, there's not a lot of charging infrastructure and, um, you know, Wyoming, which I, I focused in on uh, in, in two of the pieces, was was really kind of this, again, an interesting case study where the the uh, superchargers for Teslas are in a couple, you know, like three, a handful of, of, of cities in Wyoming. And but once you go outside of those those uh, areas, those urban areas, um, there's nothing. Right. Yeah. And, and the federal government wanted Wyoming to build these chargers uh, along the highways where there is no even gasoline stations weren't there. Right. 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 You yeah. know, and and so, you know, there was no way that that anybody was going to drop lines 100 miles or 50 miles for, for a charging station, let yeah. alone maintain it. Right. Um, so, you know, what. Again, it's it's one of these things that yeah maybe technology in the future where you can have solar powered uh, EV chargers and and do it so you can have fast chargers with the batteries and and make it economical yeah <laughs> um, right. you know because people keep forgetting about it. it you know you can't you, you can have a technology that's great but if you can't afford it or you can't you know yeah. make money on it you're you're not going to do it you're not you know people people aren't stupid. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so so what so what happens is is that from that perspective is that a lot of use cases aren't good for evs yeah okay and and if you're taking a look at ford f-150s which is the best-selling pickup truck and one of the top selling you know vehicles, vehicles of all the time yeah, exactly. and then you take a look at, at gm silverado which is right up there as well and you're talking, you know, 30 million of these things that are out on the road yeah. right now. Um, and, you know, sedans are dead. And yeah. so what's what's interesting, again, from a car manufacturer is that, you know, P 
people moved away from sedans. You know, you can find stories, you know, less than a decade ago saying, you know, SUV is king, sedans are dead, station wagons mm -hmm. are dead, right? You might have some crossovers, but it's still an SUV. Right. Um, and, and what are these guys trying to do? They're trying to get people back into sedans or call them SUVs, except they're really tiny. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so, again, it, it's going to be this clash between, you know, the use case, what people want and what they've had and yeah. what, you know, the manufacturers are going to, you know, give them. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's and they're not cheap and they're not cheap. Right. We haven't reached that point of of a mass produced, reliable um, no, I mean, Tesla yeah. keeps having to pull up the numbers, you know, Elon was fantasizing about getting him down to whatever, 30K or whatever it was. Yeah, 25 and, or 30 is, is what yeah. he wants to do. But again, why, if you're making so much money and you're selling out, even, even dropping your price by, you know, 10, 12, 15 grand, and you're still making a profit of, you know, 10 to, to 12, yeah. why would you give that up, right? Yeah. You know, and totally. it, it's, you know, He's altruistic, but only to a point. Yeah. Uh, so well, I mean, like, so have you looked at sales numbers and projections? Because I mean, like, you know, obviously there's states talking about like going all electric by 2035 or whatever. But like, you know, and I, I know that we like during the pandemic, there were sales went up a bit that, you know, we sales have been moving up. But like, it seems to me that there's a big gap between like what the policymakers want and what consumers are actually doing right now. Yeah, it, it, this is, again, one of those interesting, you know, numbers change almost daily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Biden administration has set out uh, a, a number, 50% of sales in, in 2030 are going to be EVs. Okay. Hopefully mostly BEVs. Okay. Um, the automotive manufacturers back in 2021, as the EV hype started to really take off, um, predicted that it would be between they would sell between 40 and 70 percent. So they they thought that they would really uh, get by that that 50 percent goal. The most recent studies show that they're expecting between 20 and 40 percent. So it's going to be below that goal. And even some people think that that people are, are right now honing in at about 30 percent. But you can find some. You know, yeah. the, the, the you know, some people, you know, will, will tell you, well, it'll be 60 percent. Nobody knows. Right? Yeah, it, right. It, a lot's going to happen in the next two or three years in terms of what are the real sales of these 50 to 100, you know, BEV and plug in hybrids and hybrids that are coming onto the market. Right, I mean, it's just, right, gonna be, right, it's right, just right. a flood tide that that's going to occur this year and into next year. Yeah. Yeah. And um you know, I've written on on basically uh, an emerging EV war, because, mm -hmm. again, if you take a look at, at all the numbers of models that are coming on and you take a look at potential buyers, there's not going to be a, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a nice fit because, you know, these models, uh, so many models coming on on board, uh, you know, the automotive manufacturers have to produce enough to make it profitable. Right yeah. now, you know, like startups like Rivian and, and Lucid are, are losing a hundred, you know, a hundred grand. Yeah, Rivian, plus. Rivian stock is in the garbage. Well, but they're yeah. losing a hundred thousand. Well, why not? If you lose a hundred thousand dollars for every car you sell, right? Right. It's better you, yeah. for you not to sell anything, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, but a lot of these other manufacturers are not going to be far behind. Yeah. Right. Even yeah, GM totally. says that, that they don't think that they're going to be breaking even, you know, making oh, a profit in, until 
you know, 2025. And that's if subsidies, you know, that's counting subsidies. Wow. You know, Ford is losing money on every Mustang it sells. Yeah. You know, E-Mustang. And so, you know, you can you can take loss leaders for a while, but it better be popular so you can get that brand and, and move it up. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, so, you know, if you take a look, you know, I, I haven't run all the numbers in detail because, again, it's really hard to find them, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, again, doesn't change on a daily basis. But if you take a look at all the automotive manufacturers and they all have these, these like, well, Ford, you know, we're going to, we're going to uh, build 2 million EVs in 2025 and GM says we're going to have a million and somebody else is going to have 3 million and then, you know, VW mm-hmm. and you add it all up and you say, well, that's one, where are you going to get the batteries Two, where are you going to find the, the buyers? Yeah. Right. Because, you know, three is, is, you know, um, what happens if they don't? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's a lot of optimism out there. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how many startups, you know, survive. Yeah. Right. How many large companies survive and the next two or three years are going to be really pivotal. You know, mm-hmm. it is if, if you're, if you're late to the party, say you're not bringing out EV till 26, 28 and, and the market does take off, you might be left behind. Or if it doesn't take off, you're stuck there with yeah, these, yeah, exactly. with these EVs that nobody wants to buy. And so yeah. you have to have something, you know, totally different in, in terms of what your offering is. So, you know, I wouldn't want to be a, a, an automotive manufacturer and I really wouldn't want to be a supplier because the suppliers are under even more pressure because yep. the EV manufacturers are all telling the suppliers, we want you to cut your, your prices to us, yep. you know, and they're like, well, wait a minute, you've been forcing that for the last decade on ICE vehicles and now you want to have it even more on EVs. Yeah. Okay. So what's in it for us again? Yep, um, yep. And, and so this is, this is a, you know, a pretty complex situation, you know, regardless of what direction you come in at it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the pieces is on how EVs are, are not a climate panacea. And, you know, the, you, you have kind of two points in the lead into that, the intro into it. So the first one is that we're probably not going to sell enough of them to meet targets, as we've already been talking about the, the next couple of minutes. But the other thing is that we need to change so many other things. And like, I think that this is another thing about the kind of s- sexy fetish that's be- the EV. It just hoovers up attention as if this is like the change that needs to happen. You know, like I, I'm a big, f- I'm, a, I'm a fan of Vaclav Smil, this engineer who writes about energy and stuff. He always talks about like the four pillars of modern society, which are like concrete, steel, plastic, and ammonia. We have no idea. I mean, there are plenty of ideas out there, but we have no idea how to transition away from those crucial things which make like a, you know, a huge amount of our carbon emissions come from producing these things. So it just seems like our, the way we talk about EVs versus the overall climate emissions coming from society is kind of like out of whack. Well, it is because let's, let's face it too, is that EVs are easy in, in I should say relatively easy. Right. Okay. You know, there's, there's, as I've written, there's a lot of, a lot of issues that go into it, but if you're looking, you're saying, okay, what has a hard, you know, the largest, you know, carbon output emissions, mm-hmm. right? It's transportation. What's the quickest way that you can uh, attack it? Well, it appears to be EVs, right? If you go back even eight years ago, nine years ago, before Tesla, right? Yeah. No one was talking about EVs, or everybody's talking about hybrids, 
Right. 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 Tesla really changed the conversation. It, it was yeah. kind of a proof of concept, which, of course, you know, went from, you know, extrapolation from, oh, we can build these EVs so we can build hundreds of millions of EVs. Right. That, yeah. You know, it's just this this extrapolation with, you know, with no math, actually. Yeah, no, no math. <laughs> and, and, and of course, you know, if, if in high school or in even in grade school, if you drew a, you know, a graph like that, you'd, you'd flunk. Um, so, but, but that's all the hope, right? So everybody yeah. has hopped onto that bandwagon because it looks doable, right? Yeah. And, and it's easy as a policymaker to say, we're going to ban ICE vehicles because look, you can build EVs, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and I heard, I heard people in government say, well, you know, it wasn't us who forced the EVs. It's the automotive manufacturers who, who decided to go into EVs. You know, mm -hmm. like, are you crazy? You know, yeah. That isn't how it worked at all. Right, right. But that's their that's their belief. Now, the other thing is, is that they don't want politicians don't want to talk about other lifestyle changes because they know that that's they're really walking into, you know, the, the proverbial third rail. Yeah. Right? Totally. And so, you know, we see the fight right now over gas stoves. Uh-huh. Right. right. And, yeah. And, and we and, and what people, you know behind the behind the, the scenes is this whole thing with heat pumps or with, with furnaces where there's all sorts of things that are being placed in as, as requirements for heat pumps so that they can be controlled by utilities so yep. so you won't have a choice when you buy your your heat pumps of the future those things will have those things built in now they say it's for your good well it's not yeah. for your good really it's for for their good right it's for the utility companies so it, again, the, the fact that, you know, it's going to cost you a lot more for the greater good. Well, you know, a lot of people, you know, they don't, A, they can't afford it. And they, to be honest, they don't care. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's it's one of these things that uh, as, as EVs get, as EVs take off and then, then the climate numbers don't drop like, like, you know, planned or projected, then there's going to be big fights, right? Like it's happening in, in the Netherlands right now, right? Where farmers, you know, they have to, re their farms are going to be taken over because they're not reducing their livestock because there's too much methane gas being produced. So, yeah. you know, there's, there are people in the United States who are saying, you know, you don't need to ask permission for transmission lines, put them in there. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. These fights, you know, are going to get pretty ugly and pretty nasty. And uh, so it, it's like it's it's great to put wind farms off the coast if you don't have a house that's looking at those wind farms. So, you know, right. it's, or, you know, out in Iowa where mm -hmm. you know, people are rebelling against these wind farms because of yeah. both the noise as well as the, the unsightliness. So, again, this is this is not going to, you know, EVs, you know, are, are the tip of the spear. But I'll tell you what, there's there's a lot that that's coming, you know, behind that that tip. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like that proverbial light in the tunnel. Okay, there's a train behind that light that, <laughs> that's coming as well. Yeah, well, and I think like you know, I uh, I got stuck in an airport uh, on Sunday, and I ended up talking to this guy, who you know is a conservative Catholic um, guy who works for a corporation in Detroit. He already thinks that EVs are like an attempt to for government to control our lives more, you know? I mean, so there's like a, there's a set of folks that are already opposed to this stuff. 
There's no doubt about that. But part of what I think comes out in, in your pieces, I think it might be the 11th or 12th uh, piece in the series, is the kind of blowback could that could come if we do this wrong. So like there's some people who are already pissed off and they're they're going to oppose it anyway. But if we if we do these policies without thinking about it and then things start going haywire, you know, you have the potential for people to get pissed off and resist it just like, you know, after Three Mile Island or any we can point to other instances, you know. Yeah, so, I, I think that's yeah. a that's a that's a big, big point. And I think this is the thing of of we're, we're getting I, I don't like using this term very much, but it's almost like a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, buy EVs. You've done your part. But oh, by the way, there's all this other stuff that you have to do, too. Like you can't fly on vacation. Right. No more trips to Disney World. Right. If you want to go to Disney World, you know, take the train. OK. Or take a bus that has to be electric. Um, you know, eat veggies because we don't want you eating eating meat. All right. You, you have to, you know, no very few school buses or fewer school buses or the school buses have to be electric because we want we want you to walk right and walking is good for you for your health right mm -hmm. there's always this thing of it's good for you right it's just like you know take take, take your cod liver oil um you know it's good for you um it so the government isn't very smart um in in terms of how it really wants people to change and it it has tried to, in, in my opinion, has tried to uh, finesse the issue way too, too, you know, cleverly. Yeah. Instead of saying, okay, we have a climate emergency. Mm -hmm. This is what we need to do. Right. This is how we're going to get, you know, a, a systems engineering, you know, approach that yeah. says, what is it that we need to accomplish? We need to accomplish, you know, um, you know, reduction in, in temperature in the climate. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's a risk we can't accept. Mm -hmm. So therefore, how do we, how do we mitigate that risk? What are the ways that, that, that we can do it? We can do it the easy way. Or we can do it the hard way. Okay. The easy way and which is still going to be difficult. It's still going to ask a lot from everybody is to do these things. And we're going to have to do it in this sequence, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what we have is we have things that are out of sequence. And we mm -hmm. have things, problems that concatenate. So every time we push one or try to solve one, it we have a problem that pops up over there. You know, it's the Jello pushing the, yeah, yeah, the Jello yeah. down problem. Um, and so there's there's not this, you know, uh, and there's not realism in it because mm -hmm. there's a lot of environmental groups that say, well, this is what you have to do, right? And then you go and you and you check at the the last page or last two pages has all their caveats and all their assumptions, which is. That ain't going to happen, that ain't going to happen, that ain't going to happen. You know, it's like all we need to do is wait for solid state, you know, batteries to turn up and yeah, yeah, yeah. the issue will be solved. And it's like, OK, but betting on, on unproven technology isn't a really good, you know, systems no. engineering strategy. <laughs> so, yeah. so if, you know, if you're looking at, at these things, it would be a lot better to say, OK, this is what this is the priority. These are the things we're going to do first. We're going to get our electrical grid really in good shape because that's one of the basic things that has to work. It has to be for reliable any of this stuff to for happen. any of this stuff yeah, to happen. Exactly. And, and because if the believe me, you want to see pushback, you have a blackout in the middle of wintertime or you have neighborhoods out because transformers weren't replaced in wintertime and people are freezing or, and say what happens, somebody dies. 
Yeah. Right. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, and so now you know they're not thinking about these these events, these these sparking events that could easily happen to turn people, you know, not against the against this, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so if you're going to do this, be straightforward with people and yeah. and move forward. You know, people mm. think that they read the piece. You know, I've I've been criticized on both sides. They're saying, well, you're anti EV. I said, mm -hmm. I'm not anti-EV. I'm saying if yeah. you want to do EVs, these are the issues you have to confront. They ain't going yeah, to go yeah, away. Yeah. You can, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, they're still yeah. there, you know. Right. And and other people say, well, you're, you know, you're, you're an environmentalist. You're trying to change it. No, what I'm saying is that if you stand back and you do an assessment, an honest assessment of what, what you're trying to accomplish, right? You're trying to transform the economy. Yeah. Right. In, in a decade. Right. Mm -hmm. You're taking a twenty five or twenty six trillion dollar economy in the U.S. alone and you're trying to transform that. And 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 if you're trying to be clever, that ain't again, that just that's stupid, in mm -hmm. my opinion. So, you know, you, yeah. you need to think about what it is that you're doing. What are the social ramifications? Because if you don't get the behavioral buy in, you can change technology all you want. You don't get the, the, the social buy in. You're not going anywhere. This thing yeah. will just come come whipping back at you because we have elections in this country and you know you you take well, off the, you know i think if you look at where where biden and the democrats are at just look at this past summer when gas prices went up and here's biden like the pro environmental president saying he's going to do everything possible to get gas prices down you know and it's like if you think like those gas prices i mean granted they're high and they're hard on a lot of americans who are making having trouble make ends meet anyway but that's nothing compared to what we need to do when it comes to a lot of this climate change stuff, you know? And so I think like you see like the limits for the politicians. They can talk positively about EVs, but the real selling these massive changes we have to get, get through, they just can't do it in an honest way. You know, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah. Well, and, and again, even even with that, the, the, the thing is, is that you you could still like with the transition to, to uh, hybrids and plug-in mm -hmm. hybrids along with EVs, mm -hmm. right? Or even, you know, you we're looking at at the uh, miles per gallon of, of cars in 27, 28 being up in, you know, pushing 60 miles a gallon, yeah. right? Um, and and so, you know, it's, it's an issue that, you know, I haven't seen anybody really say, okay, well, if I have a, a car that's that's 80 miles a gallon um how's that compare in terms of, of carbon output mm -hmm. right and so it, it's it's these types of things that again we just don't have any on, honest conversations about right there are people yeah. who are really anti-ev and, and i mean they'll yep. they'll use everything in their in, in in their discussions to say this isn't going to work um mm -hmm. and we have people who are pro-ev who yep. Any bad news, you know, is is buried it's or, a conspiracy or, or, or dis whatever. Yeah, yeah. discounted. <laughs> and so it's, you know, as an engineer, you know, I deal with physics. <laughs> you know, physics doesn't care what you think. Um, and so you have to deal with with the reality. This is so in, in each of the in each of the pieces, there was this little blurb uh, that came along with it. And it says in reviewing each article, Readers should bear in mind Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman's admonition for a successful technology, reality must take preference over public relations for nature with a capital N cannot be fooled. 
I thought that was beautiful. I'd never heard that Feynman quote before, but well, was that a... <laughs> well, Feynman had used that in, in his Challenger um, ah. uh, descent when he was on the, the Challenger 1, the, the, the uh -huh. main Challenger panel. I was on the second uh, Challenger panel that looked at software. Huh. But, you know, his, his admonition, which was, to, you know, because, again... NASA was trying to sell the space shuttle as a space truck, right? And right. And it was reliable. You could do it. You know, there was no issue. And this thing is a was was a, an experimental vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Feynman, you know, was trying to bring people back to the reality where, you know, the the uh, loss. You know, NASA was was talking about losses of one in a thousand or so. Uh, shuttle launches when it was mm -hmm. closer to one in a hundred, if not less. Yeah. And so, you know, if if you if you can't be honest about what's going on, uh, it, it you're going to get burned, right? At some yeah. point in time, you're you know any assumption you make is a is a risk that you've accepted, and and people forget that. You know, it's yeah. uh, you know I I'm not really you know people don't like me talking about stuff at parties because I'm a risk analyst, right? I'm, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not the, you know, but, but again, but it's clear though, what's interesting about all this too is, and we've talked about innovation is that, you know, innovation does, it comes about because of risk, right? Yeah. The whole thing is that, that people buy new technologies because they manage risk. You know, John Bernstein, who's a historian, you know, basically said all technology is about managing risk. Hmm. And so if, if you apply this correctly if you think through all the issues that that are involved in the transition to evs then there is tremendous opportunity there's there is an opportunity to make those changes that you want mm -hmm. but if you you know hide the risk or you 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 know fool with the likelihoods or the consequences or you don't look at the assumptions that that you're making then that opportunity is is, is going to be you know a pit and yeah. that's and and what i worry about is is that if this isn't handled very well, and, and you said this as well, is that this could really cause a lot of social chaos. And um, so, you know, if the goal is, you know, climate change <laughs> and yeah. managing climate change, then start with that mm -hmm. and then work your way down. Not, yeah. oh, we got this. Let's let's, you know, do this little bit here um, yeah. because it's something we can do. You know, it, it EVs, unfortunately, fall into that that politicians do something yeah list totally okay yeah and so you know it, it's again it, it's one of these things that just um it bothers me but at the same time i've been around for a long time i've seen this happen over and over again yeah um and this is just on a on a bigger scale yeah yeah right? yeah it is it is kind of like uh uh leaders of a corporation getting excited about new some new software package or computer or something like that and and pushing it instead of thinking through the fundamental problems they have as a corporation, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's well, part of, of what we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, one of the things too is that, that I didn't have a chance to write, but you know, we had talked about was this whole thing of maintaining these systems, right? Yeah. Who's going to maintain? Yeah. Uh, what, what's one of the biggest problems right now with chargers is 20, 20% 20 or more don't work. Yeah. Right? They're not yep. being maintained. And yep. so, you know, I, I've, you know, talked to some very innovative charging companies who have ways of, 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 addressing that mm -hmm. but um you know if you know you put out millions of these ev chargers and you know millions don't work yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah people people are going to be pretty pretty annoyed 
Oh yeah. Right? Totally. And and mm-hmm. so again, it's it's the the transition also has this thing of, you know, again, that I didn't write about in very much detail of stranded assets, right? What mm-hmm. happens to all these, you know, uh, fossil fuel refueling stations, all these big, you know, um, storage tanks, all these things mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. we have in the ground. Okay, you know, super fun. There'll be super fun sites of the future, totally. yeah. right? And we, you know, nobody's writing about that. Uh, we have issues right now. We know in recycling of solar panels, right? Mm-hmm. They're very devilishly uh, expensive to recycle and yeah. hard. And so, you know, again, there's all these other things that come with this. So, yep. you know, you can follow the, the, you know, the shiny toy, but that that toy also leaves you know, a trail of, of crap behind it that, yep. that needs to be cleaned up. And so, again, the, one of the future stories I hope to write is just on main, on maintaining. Okay, mm-hmm. let's get to this future. Okay, but how are you going to maintain it? How many people do you need to maintain it? How are you going to maintain it? Yeah. What happens if you have a software glitch in your AMI system that is recharging cars and instead it fries them all? Okay. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> so... You know, yeah. we, we already have issues where in c- certain chargers, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen some of these stories where people have gone with their cars, they've connected up their EV to the charger, and there's a glitch in the charger and you can't get the charger off. Oh my gosh. Okay, it owns your car until they get a tech to come out and, wow. and turn the charger off. So, you know, we're talking a lot more software, a lot mm-hmm. more opportunity you know, and, and I don't think that a lot of this stuff has really, you know, in a lot of the infrastructure has the quality control that mm-hmm. we would be expecting because this is a gold rush. Yeah. Who, totally. who can get the money? Who, who can put their, yep. their equipment out there? And as cheaply we'll, as possible. And, and it, and it's kind of the IT mode of, well, we'll fix it after yeah. it's out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not a, a fail fast kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, um, the, the the series is great. Well, uh, I'm I really am grateful f- to you for writing it, just because I think there's there's nothing out there like it so far. What's next for you? What what are, you're gonna think about maybe doing this maintenance piece? Do you know what you're working on next? Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking at at this charging thing, especially mm-hmm. charging for apartment buildings and for uh-huh. you know uh, multi uh, multi apart multi apartment buildings and things because that that's a big issue, right? There's yep. You know, people, you know, again, you, you, you can hear a statement almost every week that, well, people are going to charge at home. No, they're not. Even people yeah. with garages, most of them can't charge out of their garages, right? So, you know, the, the what's interesting, again, is a lot of the assumptions that were made about charging at home were based on Nissan Leaf and Chevy, um, Chevrolet Volt, yeah. you know, in certain communities of people who had homes. Right. With garages. Right. So if I have people with homes with garages charging at home, then my study says everybody's going to charge it. Again, another mm-hmm. extrapolation thing that nobody looks at. So uh, I've been looking at different uh, kind of novel uh, charging systems people are bringing out that resolve a lot of the maintenance issues, uh, a lot of the skill issues that, that are involved, make it a lot easier uh, doesn't solve everything, but but now you know overcomes a lot of the issues that that mm-hmm. are involved in trying to get apartment buildings and other areas where where there isn't easy charging, where it'd be very expensive how to how to handle that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so because that's that's an issue that I'm I'm worried about. The the maintenance issue is another. Um, I also really want to kind of take a look at what's the likelihood of these states. There are 17 along with California that have signed up to, you know, an, an EV strategy. 13 of those 17 have said, yeah, we're gonna we're, we plan on banning ICE vehicles in 2035. What does it really take? What is it yeah. going to take? to actually get there, right? What yeah. are the numbers? Just pure, how many yeah. sales do you need to meet? How yeah. much, you know, chargers do you need? What What is it on a on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, how much yeah, is that it- Yeah, that sounds slick. You know, I how like much it. is it gonna cost? Yeah. Uh, another, another area that I'm looking into, and of course, you know, somebody will probably try to beat me to the punch on all these, but is, is just all the claims of how many EVs these manufacturers are planning to produce in 2025, 2028, 2030, and see, okay, what's that really going to take? Yeah. Right. What What are the real numbers? And if, if for you, minerals and for all minerals, the, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And for yeah. you know, for again, you have transportation, right? One of yeah. the one of the reasons that battery plants are next to production plants, or vice versa. Is because the transportation costs of batteries is incredible. Oh, it's so high. It's they're, incredibly they're so high. Heavy. Yeah. They're not only heavy, but the safety factors. Yeah. Right now, think about yeah. you know, would you want to have a train of you know ten thousand you know lithium batteries for, <laughs> for your cars coming through your neighborhood on the railroad? Oh my right? god. Right. People complain Make... about oil. Think about yeah. about these. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you know, there's there's these other things that again come in the train, and so yeah. you know it's. This other area too that I'd like to explore more, which I didn't really have a lot of time to, is was the unintended consequences, mm-hmm. right? Both large and small, because these are, again, this is how you either get people to buy into it or you get people to rebel against it, and it's mm-hmm. these unintended consequences that that I think are going to be really key, and again, haven't been explored in any detail. Yeah. Um, you know, what's yeah. funny is is um, this. Uh, I used to live in the UK. I didn't read the newspaper very often. I, I was reading more of the Financial Times, but the Daily Mail has um, kind of taken upon itself to to take a look at unintended consequences of EVs in the UK. Mm-hmm. And some of these are really very wild um, hmm. and that that you don't think about. You know, they they were one of the first ones to to take a look at weight, uh, the, the the Brits uh, at weight in parking garages. Uh-huh. If you put too many EVs, they're not built for EVs with the extra weight. Oh, they're worried about collapsing. Wow. All right. They won't take them on ferries because of the yeah. lithium batteries. All right. Um, it turns out that there, if on holidays, there's been these really long lines of people waiting to charge their EVs. Mm-hmm. And in certain districts, the people are getting ticketed. Uh, um, so, right. Because um, they're coming all the way out on the road. Right. And yeah. there's also, you know, the the, the things that, that you read about, you know, again, in, in some of the press about people parking their, their EVs to charge and then leaving, mm-hmm. right? There was there an was a, a interesting story in Australia about, you know, somebody, you know, doing that at one of the chargers. And then when he came back, they asked him, well, where were you? you you've, you've been gone all day. He says, well, I went out ballooning. <laughs> So I see, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind yeah. of like, again, this, this whole, there, there's issues like in, in the West is that, you know, you can't charge your truck with a trailer. Yep. 
because of the right. way uh, the, yeah, how the, the way they're set where, up where they're right. set up there's yeah. there's lots of chargers that are not set up for uh handicapped people totally okay yep. there's there's lots of chargers that are out there in in you know the open air okay yep. you know is, is to try grand... to be an old person even. yeah your grandmother yeah. gonna go in and charge yeah. okay and so again the, the the story always comes back to well people are going to charge in their garage and it's like again you know yeah. think think that's all i'm asking people to do is think <laughs> you know well bob thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today this was a lot of fun just as i knew it would be well thank you leah i had a good time and, and hopefully i won't get too much hate mail Hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.